I don't mind being told what to do. I know. Well, you're the, you're your submissive, David, as they call that. You know what I mean? I guess so. But uh, that's a whole other podcast, really, and uh, perhaps uh, for an adult audience, I don't know. Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast, State of America, hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? Better than I deserve, Mr. Rice. How about yourself? Oh, I'm not doing too bad. And also joining us today, David, is producer Jason. Jason, how are you, sir? I'm like the proverbial fly on the wall, it seems, these days. I'm always just lingering around. Third wheel. That third wheel has a negative implication, David. And I uh you know, we're we're lucky to have Jason here. Essentially all we have to do is show up. Yeah. Well, if it's a tricycle, <laughs> that third wheel is important. Yeah. <laughs> Jason's like the principal around here now. He just tells us when to when to be present and then we uh, show up with our faces for radio and, and do our thing. I don't like that. It's nice. But uh, I don't know, some exciting things happening. Band did an iHeartRadio performance, rolled out uh, another new tune from the Happiness Bastards record that uh, is soon to be upon us. There was a song called Bedside Manners. I really, really like that song. And if it's the opener to the record, that uh, gives the record a lot of promise. I don't know what did you guys think about it. I would have released it over the one they did, to be honest with you. They're both fine, but I really like Bedside Manners. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's got all the things we like about what the crows. It's got big, heavy riffs. It's got plenty of, you know, gang vocal and the breakdown section. I thought was just outstanding. That after that second verse or the second chorus, that's just great. And there's a couple of YouTube videos out there, particularly of because uh, as we record this, uh, they've played the Vegas show as well. And there's a dude front and center in in the video I saw on YouTube who is just rocking out i need to find that guy and get him on the show <laughs> yeah yeah he did look like he was enjoying himself <laughs> which is great i mean that's the whole point really but that chorus has a great chris vocal on it yeah and uh it really makes me excited about the record uh, speaking of those performances though the youtube clips from the vegas show we actually were debating back and forth a little bit on the uh patreon group chat that we have going and uh I uh, tried to one up David on his hot take uh, situation, and threw out there that I f- I feel that uh, Nico is probably the second best guitarist that's been in this band through the rotation. And I, to clarify, I'm meaning that uh, fit wise, I really feel that he fits into the band the best. You know, second to of course Mark Ford. Now you're uh, just throwing a torch onto a bunch of kindling. I think we got like 20 responses within five minutes of you posting that. <laughs> We did, we did, but I mean, I'll stand by it. I mean, I've always liked Nico's playing, even when he was in the Magpie. I thought he did great, and when he was with Richard's solo band, he's just a great player. I mean, uh, you know, personal relationships aside, I just think the guy is a real good fit, and I liked what he was playing. He's very faithful to the original material without just being boring about it, which I think is a great approach. Yeah, I have no arguments. He's bringing a lot to the table, and I think the consensus from all of us including the group chat with patreon and all of our constituents and david even posted it on uh whatever it's called now twitter 
X thing. They got to turn him up. Like, got to be confident in what he's doing and let him let him rip. Yeah, it could have just been the mix, though. You know, sure. A heart radio thing. Yes, a lot of times I'll be honest. uh, Radio doesn't really get the mix right when they're doing those those live broadcasts. It's kind of like when they when they guy that the guy that hosted it was goofy. Yeah, he was. It was cringeworthy. But it was classic Chris. He's got all the. My my fa- it may be my favorite line ever. When did you get the itch to go back to writing? Because when I ran out of calamine lotion, <laughs> he's quick. <laughs> Give him that. Over the years, he's been quick. He always throws out a good uh, good line like that. You know what I mean? And and they they rib each other. At one point, Rich says he's like, "There, I got a word in," and Chris is like, "You got seventeen words in, all in a row." <laughs> I so, mean, I, I liked his explanation of the title, uh, the title of the record. By the way, it really is kind of fitting for their you know their current standing with each other you know they know the score and they know you know they at least they don't ignore the fact that that things have been problematic over the years and they're kind of trying as best they can to get beyond that as adult people well and i appreciate that too and then carrying it further with the show again as we record we've heard the first vegas show uh his comments before they played Peyton eight where he said you know he's asked the crowd you know, how many of you have seen our band before? How many, you know, he's like, how many of you guys have seen us many times? And then he's like, we're going to play a song that uh, the people who've seen us many times will know. And if you don't know it, like, look at your neighbor who pretends they know it. And then they played Paint and Eight, which let's go. I mean, that's what we've been looking for, right? Yeah, that's deep, I think baby. that bodes well for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Makes me wonder if uh, maybe they're taking our advice, you know? <laughs> So all in all, man, I'm I'm excited. I think it's going to be a great run. Uh, we've talked about it before, previously, that each of us are sort of manning a city with David in Nashville and Ian in New York, and myself in Chicago. I don't know you about about you guys, but my uh, my roster of uh, people coming to hang in Chicago keeps growing. Sleepy Joe is uh, committed. We've got Jason J from the the text thread. We've got. Uh, Justin Kahn and Sean Hillman and myself, and I'm bringing guys, and they're all bringing guys. It's it's going down in Chicago, folks. Come on out. And Aragon Ballroom, like I said, it's all GA. So buy a ticket. We're all together. We don't have to sit in the balcony or the mezzanine or nothing. We're on the rail. I'm working on some uh, New York activity so far. Uh, Brian Rosenberg is on me, and Jason Rudine is going to be making his way up to New York as well. So Fantastic. Yeah, it's a solid foundation that I'm going to build on and, and put something together. And David, you just gave away a ticket to uh, hang in yeah, Nashville with you. Yeah, my wife couldn't go, so Nigel Price is going to go with me. So this week's episode, uh, Jason was at the helm. This is actually one that David and I, for various logistic reasons, couldn't make it. But you had a great chat with Rob Harvilla, didn't you? Yeah, so this really came about because I'm not shy about my love for the 90s. Uh, I happen to be one of those guys, and I think a lot of our listeners probably fall into the same category my entire high school and college years were in the 90s and the music of the 90s is just so powerful to me and all my memories growing up and uh robert villa started a podcast in 2020 uh, specifically focused on the 90s called 60 songs that explain the 90s he's now got a book out as well and uh, i've just enjoyed listening to that podcast so much and relating on several levels not only relating nostalgically to being a kid in the 90s with these songs and the experiences of buying CDs and so forth, but also the connection of being a 
guy in our mid forties, you know, and living life now. So I thought it would be a great guest to come on, especially because the Crows obviously started and flourished in the nineties. And it was one band he actually had never mentioned. He doesn't mention them in the book and he doesn't, hasn't to this date mentioned them on the podcast. And so I saw some messages that were coming in, a lot of requests to get his feedback on the crows, posts on the message boards, et cetera. And uh, so we had a chance to to connect and chat. So, yeah, he seems like a great guy and that's a fantastic podcast he has. So I'm glad we uh, had the opportunity to have him on in some capacity and hopefully maybe down the road we can, uh, all three of us can have a chat again. And, uh, but uh, thank you for doing that, Jason. We do appreciate it. Yeah. Very excited about it. So, um, and, and before we start, one of the things we're going to do is uh, when we had Eric Bobo on, he uh, gave us a bunch of stories that I kind of had to cut out and archive. And we had this concept of doing a thing called Bobo's Corner. And the 90s lead to some interesting concepts that we talked about, specifically like this idea of rap groups joining with rock bands. And we actually asked Eric Bobo, like, what would it be like if Cypress Hill joined forces with the black crows and he gave us an answer so before we go to the hervilla interview i'm going to kick it to bobo's corner and let bobo tell you his thoughts on a cypress hill and black crows combo One of the things that's interesting about that time was that was really when hip hop was just blowing up. And, you know, you had bands, Beastie Boys, you had Cypress Hill, you had LL Cool J, you had Public Enemy. And there were a lot of rock bands trying to get in on that a little bit. You know, you had Anthrax with yeah. Public Enemy and then, you know, Ice-T comes out with a metal band. You yeah. know, so he's kind of going in reverse. I think it would have been really cool on at least a song or two in a market if they would have maybe tapped into that a little bit and brought somebody else from like Cypress Hill in or something, even if it wasn't for a whole song, just come in for like a verse or two, because mm. I think they would have found a way, I think, to make it sound right. You know, it, it would have been interesting because, you know, I had invited both Be Real and Send Dog to the sessions. I mean, first that, you know, Chris was like, yo, you know, tell your boys to come on down. You know, I'm, you know, I put my weed up against their weed. I mean, he was like, really like he was in it, you know? And I called him. I like, yo, you guys need to come down here and check out how they're doing it. Because you, you gotta, you gotta understand like Cypress was really like, they were, they were on the, the rise right there, but they were still early on in their career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way the discipline wasn't hundred percent there for studio wise. I said, yo, you need to come down here. <laughs> you need to come down here. And all the, you know, the hangs with it, it was just basically hangs. But I wish I would have thought to maybe suggest something like that. I think it might have been a hard sell for Rich. Yeah. Uh, to do to do that. But like even Rich was cool with me. Even Rich was like, yo, you know, you know, 
we should we should jam out sometime and everything like that. So I was kind of like a cool little, you know, a cool little addition. I think that we would have done some cool things. everybody thank you for joining us here on the state of america podcast this is producer jason and today i'm very excited because as a kid who spent my entirety of high school and college in the 90s this is a voice that speaks directly into my past esteemed music critic you can find his writing in various levels of defunct alt weeklies across this land author of the book, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, and host of the awesome podcast of the same name, and most importantly, the pride of Ohio, Mr. Rob Harvilla. Yo, it's it's esteemed. I'm very excited about esteemed. Defunct is another good, unfortunately, applicable word. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Very excited. You've been one of the people that's been on the list. Our listeners will reach out all the time and they ask me and David and Ian, like, we know some inside information is like, is he ever going to talk about the crows? I'm like, I don't know. Let me, let me ask. <laughs> I try. I try and keep it close to the vest often because I don't know myself. You know, there, there's sure. a, a delightfully arbitrary nature to, to my show where I don't really know what I'm going to do until I've already done it. And so it's there's no inside information to be had because there's no information exactly. at all. Exactly. Well, besides being a, an esteemed music critic, I got to tell you, one of the, the greatest accolades that I can give you is how often I assimilate your mannerisms in my day-to-day life. Oh, no. As, okay. as recently as this morning, I have three daughters, and they're upstairs, and oh. they're having this fight over the bathroom that they share. And oh. I come downstairs, and my wife says, what's going on up there? And I said, there's some sort of hair in the bathtub situation. Don't get involved. That's right. That's right. Applies applies to anything. Certainly applies to mediating three daughters using one bathroom. That's yes. Yes. that's just the right move. But that's I'm I'm hugely honored by that. Well, or it's weird, but that's okay. <laughs> but that lends me to the first thing I wanted to ask you about. You know, you've you've obviously you've you've been a writer for a long time, better part of 20 years or so. And you started this podcast in 2020. What what took so long? I mean, I would imagine that in day-to-day conversation, people have heard your talk and heard your voice and said, hey, you need to get a microphone in front of your face. I don't know if anyone had ever said that to me before, honestly. Yeah, it, it's it's weird. I, I started, like you, I went, uh, the 90s was high school and college, right? I graduated in 2000, 
you know, I started working for those defunct all weeklies. You know, I did college radio, but that, you know, that barely counts, you know, at least, uh, you know, back then. And so I, I had never, I'd guessed it on other Ringer podcasts, but never considered starting one myself until 2020, you know, and there was sort of a COVID aspect to it to suddenly be like super locked down, you know, and, and trying to reach out to the world, you know, and when Spotify bought the ringer, you know, it was clear that that podcasts were going to be a huge focus going forward. It just seemed like a good move, but it's weird. I, yeah, I, I can't say that my wife was ever like more people need to hear you talk, you know, like that's, that's not been a sentiment expressed to me very often. And it's just that it's their fault for not alerting me to this possibility early earlier but i yeah it, it it came about very organically and very randomly feeling to me you know in 2020 but by far this has been you know my favorite thing that i've done professionally and certainly the biggest reaction i've ever had so it's you know better late than never i suppose yeah sure and to that end uh at this point you're approaching the 120 in terms of number of songs officially credited to defining the 90s although i <laughs> We're going to challenge your math to that a little oh, bit no. in a minute. But besides, before we get into the math and the naming convention okay. problems that you have. Yeah, it's an issue. They left me in charge. So as a producer, one of the most fascinating things I want to ask you about is your, your Google Docs and your spreadsheet situation. <laughs> as you plan, because I, as a producer for two different podcasts, I have two spreadsheets yeah. that I use. I track it all. And so... When you've mapped this out and you're looking at the list of possibilities, do you start in your mind sort of grouping them together and going, well, this goes well with that? Or does all of that, you just think of that all on the fly? It's more on the fly. You know, I it, it does start, you know, it's like, all right, let's do a podcast about the 90s. Like, let's do 60 songs. And, you know, and you start a Google Doc and suddenly there are 150 songs in there and you're like, oh, no. And that's sort of the way we went forward. Right. And we got close to 60. And you're like, well, let's do 90 and got close to 90 and said, well, let's do 120. We're going to stop now because you got to stop at some point, I think. Uh, but it's it's always been very arbitrary, you know, and I've tried to leave myself enough space to where I can wake up one morning and just be like Portishead. I just I want to I want to think about listen to talk about Portishead, you know, all week, you know, and I have that ability. And so other than trying to keep a rhythm of not doing too many like alternative rock songs, you know, or too many rap songs or whatever in a row, just trying to keep a mix, you know, both tonally like I just did Michael Jackson, which, of course, I had hesitated doing for a long time. And inevitably, that's going to be a a heavier episode hopefully it doesn't have like a very special episode of a sitcom type you know huge tonal variation to it but there's a difference right and so just trying to mix up tones and genres you know and years micro eras within the 90s it's more about keeping that balance than it is adhering to any kind of plan you know what we've had always is a ton of raw material a ton of possibilities you know, but I do just try and pick and choose from within them, you know, down to my whim from week to week, almost. We could do with a little more planning around here, I think. And it is very frightening. You know, I have three episodes left as I talk to you now, and that's really frightening, you know, to think the finality of it is really settling in, you know, and every song you pick is five songs that you're not going to do, right? Like all that kind of thing, you know, the lack of planning <laughs> is starting to catch up with us. Finally, but I have tried to keep it loose. But yeah, I mean, it's just Google Docs. My my life is run by by Google Docs, even if they are arbitrary, you know, and pretty messy. 
Well, one of the things though I do appreciate is going back to the the math situation is actually, mm. you know, each of the episodes you do, while it, the title of it may be it's about this particular song, the reality is you touch on a multitude yeah. of different things. A perfect example that stands out is I know how fond you are from listening to Matthew Sweet. And while you didn't mm-hmm. do an episode proper on Matthew Sweet, you basically do a mini dive on Matthew Sweet on your <laughs> way to a Google Dows song. So right. in, in that case, if I were to challenge the math, there are hundreds of songs that you've touched on outside of just the proper title. And that's where I wonder, I've, in this case, this one was sort of obvious because it was this element of the power pop movement. Mm-hmm. But that's where I mean, when you're grouping things together, I just wonder how you have the song you're going to title the episode on. The back journey, you call it a monologue. The, mm-hmm. I, it's like a journey to get to that song. How does all yeah. that piece come together? Is those you start at a spot and work towards the song? Do you start at the song and work backwards in time? I'm just curious how you start with a song and then all of a sudden you're on a car ride to Wendy's. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the car rides to Wendy's are very important. There are times, I, you know, Matthew Sweet, as you say, as I love Matthew Sweet so much. And I thought about doing just a, a, a girlfriend episode forever and ever and ever. And as we were getting close to the end, you know, it's another case where it's like, oh, there's all these other songs I want to do. Like, how can I start grouping them together? I feel like the closer we get to the end, the more I'm working to cram in as many other songs as possible. You know, an example of this would be Soundgarden, right? Like I figured always wanted to do a Soundgarden episode, you know, and that came. I had taken a break. I was off for a few months. And then that break, you know, this Steve Harwell from Smash Mouth had passed away you know and also everyone you know blind melon people had been telling me you know for a long time like you ever going to do no rain and if you're going to talk about blind melon you know there's some black crows crossover there maybe but i it, it just started to coalesce in my mind the idea of talking you know about the three of them about chris cornell about steve harwell and about shannon hoon you know together and just the way that grief works and the way that grief changes your relationship with the song when the singer passes, you know, and sometimes that's pretty immediate, unfortunately, in the case of Blind Melon. And sometimes, you know, that it takes a long time the way it did with Chris Cornell and then eventually with Smash Mouth, just the way that grief can work and change how you feel about a song, even after years and years and years with it, you know, and so that's there's a little more organization to it. But I do think week to week there's an arbitrariness again, you know, Matthew Sweet is somebody like I, I thought about it for a long time. I had a lot I wanted to say, you know, and I just found a way to use that to build up to the Goo Goo Dolls who I also wanted to do. But the truth is like, I do try and leave myself open to the universe, right? Like I have these last three episodes left and it's not like I know, you know, the 10 other songs that I want to bring up in the course of them, you know, to try and sneak them in. You know, I, I do think, the scary thing about this show is I don't really know what I'm going to do before I do it. And every episode is sort of scary. And every episode is like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come up with enough, you know, to justify this. And then somehow I do, you know, so the spreadsheet again, dictates, you know, the raw material that I have. And there's always a fearsome, you know, overwhelming amount of it. But I do try and just leave myself open to what bubbles to the surface, you know, right when I sit down to try and build it up you know, to a Goo Goo Dolls episode or whatever. When you think about the 90s as a whole, you've mentioned a couple of times how the 90s are sort of unique because they're like almost this identifiable thing. Like they have, you say the 90s and people know what that is. 
And, yeah, yeah. And it can, um, for those of us that lived through it, it elicits an emotion and it elicits memory and, and nostalgia and all of that. I heard you in an interview mention 1994 specifically. Um, hmm. This is the 30th anniversary of that year, obviously. And, you know, as Black Crows fans, there's a pretty significant record that came out that year with Amorica. Of course. And so as you look at 30 years uh, and the anniversary of 1994, to me, it seems like one of the most prominent music release years ever. And I heard you hmm. describe it as maybe the peak of the 90s. Can you kind of explain what you meant by that or what that what 1994 specifically conjures in you? Yeah, the way I've talked about it, you know, Green Day's Dookie came out that year. You know, the Offspring's Smash came out that year. You know, unfortunately, one of the biggest things about 1994 historically is that's when Kurt Cobain died, right? You know, and that if looking at it from a distance of 30 years now, you can see sort of the arc of grunge, quote unquote, change in that moment, you know, and bands like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, you know, even even bands just in that sort of nexus changed their approach going forward. You know, Pearl Jam, I think, made a really deliberate choice to not try to be the center of culture anymore. You know, they, they're still a huge band, you know, but they're not doing videos. They're not doing as many interviews. They're not trying to be, you know, a huge mainstream, you know, chart-topping band with the records that they put out after Vitology, you know, starting with No Code. Even as a teenager, I think I could tell that, like, No Code was a record. Like, oh, they're really, you know, withdrawing in a sense. And so I think the other thing I've talked about where 1994 sticks out is that I talk all this time about this chart I saw of the biggest songs on alternative rock radio now, you know, active rock or whatever you call it. All of the biggest songs that you will hear on a radio station, a rock radio station in 2024 are from 1990 to 1994. It's like Man in the Box by Alice in Chains you know, up to, you know, Green Day, you know, and it, that that gets you the biggest Pearl Jam songs, the biggest Nirvana songs, obviously, but it's it's all that window, self-esteem by, by the offspring. And something, it's the beginning, it's the peak of something, but also the end of something. You know, once you get into the mid-90s, you know, you're heading into that moment where like ska has a moment, where electronica has a moment, where new metal goes on to have a moment. You know, like there's these cool, fascinating neo swing, like these micro scenes from here. But the idea of alternative rock blowing up and peaking right there in the 90s and the early 90s with, you know, Pearl, the early Pearl Jam records, you know, never mind, of course. You know, that's where it all happens. And 1994 is 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 where that pulls back a little bit. And Green Day, of course, explodes and sort of pop punk, you know, the warp tour kind of thing in general. That blows up from there and sort of takes over, picks up from where grunge left off. But that is where grunge left off. And I'm curious, you know, I the Black Crows have always been kind of a blind spot for me. Like I've listened to the records and I know the hits, but I've never done like the deep emotional dive you know, that I want to do with everything, you know, and I should have done with them a long time ago, just given how they're so important. So I'm curious for you how they fit into that. You know, the biggest Black Crows hits from a chart perspective, you know, are the early 90s, you know, and Amorica, you know, obviously you named your show after it. It's a huge record, you know, but it doesn't have like a hard to handle type smash hit on it. And so I'm curious how the Black Crows career maps on to that you know whether you ever considered them alternative rock 
whether they were really part of this thing that was happening, you know, in the early 90s on MTV, et cetera, or if they're just sort of parallel to it, but not really affected by what's going on in the rest of rock and roll, you know? The interesting thing with the Black Crows, and, and this is where it gets unique, is that you're you're coming out of an era where you have a large influence from hair metal still exists in the coming out of the late 80s, early 90s. The rise sure. of grunge is definitely prominent. And then wedged in the middle of there, you have sort of this big, loud callback to classic rock. Mm-hmm. You know, of a lot of music critics, yourself probably, certainly not one of them, but uh, we we as fans get frustrated with music critics because the Crows kind of get lumped in as they're a Stones faces offshoot type of situation, mm-hmm. not anything on their own. And when they hit the scene in, in 1990, 1991, that is what they reminded you of. The big bombastic front man, the loud guitars mm-hmm. and the open G tuning. And mm-hmm. it was such a dissonant sound compared to depths that grunge was going to compared to the shininess of glam and hair metal. And sure. so one of the carryovers you get as a child of the 90s, you grew up with parents who were child of the 70s, <laughs> right? So all of that and more right. cutting through this uh, these other big music movements. With an Otis Redding cover, you know, as one of their breakouts. Right, right. Right. And then you've got this guy up there who is um, brash and anti-corporate and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to not take the the angst of the teenager and and turn it into darkness but he's like speaking out and he's flamboyant with it and yeah it's attractive you know for all of that and then what happens though is as they progress so shake your money maker comes out with otis redding cover jealous again etc they make a huge splash they fight they sell five million records and then their second record comes out debuts number one Mm -hmm. and by the time Southern Harmony runs its course and we move into Amorica, they've morphed into sort of not even jam band adjacent. They become basically a full-on jam band. And that's one of the things I always wonder, especially from a music critic standpoint, is when a band comes on a scene and makes a name for themselves in a certain sound and in a genre, and then they change that, maybe not abruptly, but rather quickly, you're on your third record and you sound entirely different. How does that how does the music critic see that? How does that draw fans in? How do you build a following that way? Hmm. You know, rock critics just categorize things, you know, and I catch myself doing this, like going back and listening to these records again, knowing I'm going to talk to you, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, like seeing things off Shake Your Money Makers, like, oh, this is with a little help from my friends, you know, this is a real Joe Cocker vibe, you know, like I, I hear the Stones a lot, you know, I know that's almost a cliche sort of reaction but they absolutely do feel like a throwback in a 60s, 70s thing. Like at a moment, you know, right before Nirvana blows up, right in this sort of dead zone between hair metal ruling and grunge ruling. And they do they do sound a little different. You know, they do sound fresh in a way, but also redolent, you know, of the 70s. Like Lenny Kravitz, you can put in that same sort of thing. But like that's that's what a rock critic does is just try and connect things, right? Like listening to Southern Harmony, it's like, this is 1992, you know, I'm listening to 10 by Pearl Jam, and I think it's the greatest thing I've ever heard. And I hear these songs on the radio, but I don't buy this CD. And I wish I did, because like Remedy is just like Pearl Jam, but they're enjoying themselves, right? Like they have a flamboyance 
you know, and they're not angsty, you know, and there's there's just a joy and a we enjoy being rock stars aura that these guys have specifically in this moment. That's that's hugely appealing in retrospect, even at the time it felt so discordant. You know, this is the time when I'm learning, you know, from Eddie Vedder, Kurt Cobain, Billy Corgan, that like you're supposed to be conflicted as a rock star and it's supposed to really weigh on you and blah, 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 blah. You know, that element of the Black Crows is as much of a throwback as anything musical, mm. you know, just the idea that they can enjoy themselves. And when you get to Amorica, like I'm doing it again, but like I hear like the red hot chili peppers almost like I hear just this wildness, you know, and this willingness to try anything. And again, this flamboyance, you know, this audacity, you know, that you're not supposed to have and to go from like it's called P25 London. I hope I'm saying that right. But like, you know, that it felt like the red hot chili peppers with slide guitar to me and then like one or two songs later you're in the wiser time you know which is one of like the better like country like pedal steel type songs you're going to hear in 1994 like they're covering a lot of ground in that way and the categorization that a rock critic would put on them from a morica forward is like oh like this is like a blind melon blues traveler you know womad type sounds right you know you would lump them in you would lump the crows in you know, rusted root or whatever, like a bunch of bands that have a little bit of similarity musically, but it's it's more about image, you know, like what they're putting out and also the image that's being projected on them, you know, by Rolling Stone, by Spin or whatever, you know, just based, I don't know, on album covers, you know, on interviews, on press photos, you know, you just look at the Black Crows and you think you know what they're about, you know, and you think you know where to put them you know, and that's as much about the image as it is about the music. You know, I as to whether they screwed it up, you know, I, I it's it's wild, like listening, you know, to the later 90s records, you know, again, you know, there's there's no she talks to angels type blowout. You know, they're not selling five million records anymore. But most of these bands that broke in the mid early 90s aren't anymore. You know, the Crows aren't alone in that sense, you know, in sort of I and another thing. I'm just rambling. Sorry, but like we do a lot of rambling around here. It's fine. We do a lot of rambling. <laughs> your first couple records, you know, are huge. And then like you do settle into yourself to a certain extent, you know, and it's it's a very common, you know, Pearl Jam had this to an extent, you know, all the big, you know, on the active rock radio station. Now, what you're going to hear are Pearl Jam songs from the first three records. You're going to hear a live black. You're going to hear daughter. You know, you're going to hear like Corduroy, Rearview Mirror or whatever. You're not going to hear as much from No Code On, you know. And so I, I don't think that the Black Crows are anomalous, you know, or you ding them in any way for the fact that from a Morica forward, they're more about albums. They're more about their core fan base. You know, they're a little jammier. You know, I, I do think that that is the natural order of things with rock bands of any sound at any time. The biggest place that the Crows fan base will say that they they really turned it the wrong direction and the, and that they did screw it up is the the space between Three Snakes that comes out in in that 96 97 era there's mm-hmm. a whole record they scrapped called Band um that sounds that's a lot a great, like those I records. love that I, yeah. I, I the whole scrap of record scraps an entire yeah that's that's a classic move that's that's fantastic yeah um, and those records all had that sort of more Grateful Dead, Almond Brothery, jam bandish type of vibe. And then in 1998, 
they abruptly sort of tried to recapture that original shake your money maker vibe. Right. And you were right, talking about right. like bands that come out and they have this this way you want to see them. So they go from essentially this look that tells you, yep, that's a that's kind of a hippie jam band. And all of a sudden now they're out in these these white tinseled sparkly suits with big hat and feathers <laughs> and, yeah, and the yeah, abrupt yeah. image change. Okay. Has the fan base going, what is happening right here? It was seen as like this alienation towards this fan base they had built up. Oh, that's interesting. Cause yeah, like listening to By Your Side, you know, this morning, you know, it's from 1999. And like I I I liked this record, you know, and it started. You know, the first few songs like go faster, you know, like it's a little it's faster. It's it's it's, you know, not punk, but just a little rowdier, you know, and it's catchy. Like it's trying to be a radio song, you know, in an era 1999, you know, and this is not the dominant sound of rock radio anymore. And it, it hasn't been for a while, you know, but I the, the record starts really great like that. And then it ends. You know, the last few songs on By Your Side, you know, all seem to be very romantic, you know, like there's a sort of a sappiness that kicks in. But it's cool, though, you know, like it works for them. But I didn't get the sense listening to this record that they were making a strategic play to like recapture something or to recalibrate, you know, and this is, you know, this is the benefit of in real time seeing you know, how their look changed, like you're saying, how their videos changed, like their positioning from a style standpoint, I wasn't as tuned into at the time. And so I'm just listening to this record now. And it's like, this is, you know, I, I don't think it's as cliched as like a back to basics type thing, you know, but I get how it's a departure a little bit, you know, from the jammy, you know, from the country, you know, pedal steel sort of sounds, you know, that's those are the moments in Amorica and Three Snakes that I tend to be drawn to, you know, the soul stuff, you know, as someone who grew up a little bit on Bob Seger, you know, people like that, you know, I really dig that kind of sound, you know, the sort of Sly Stone, Otis Redding type thing, you know, but coming from white guys, white rocker dudes, but like they make it work, you know, and they're honest about their limitations and how they get there. So that's interesting to me that by your side, you know, this era is perceived that way. Well, and then this heads out of the 90s into the 2000s. But then you move into they do a tour with Jimmy Page and, and essentially become the world's greatest Led Zeppelin cover band and okay. kill it. Absolutely destroy it. Mm, uh, but then they started know. the journey back into Americana sort of stuff, much more slower right. country roots style mm -hmm. music. So this is a band that has taken us on a journey from classic rock to mm -hmm. jam band to super polished trying <laughs> to capture the aesthetic of 90s alt rock in a right. higher way back to americana <laughs> and then you know they book shows in big amphitheaters and they don't sell well and you kind of go well who's going to that mm. show <laughs> right, <laughs> which of right. those groups are we, you know, <laughs> what are we going to get here? And that's what's uniquely right. different, I think. They're, they have a new record coming out. Sounds like it's going to mm. be another big rock record. They're going on tour. We all have tickets and we're going. But you're you're always yeah. curious of what version is coming. Yeah, well, the eras. They've got eras, man. Yeah, you just Taylor don't know Swift what style. they're going to be. <laughs> and meanwhile, there's a lot of turnover, right? You know, that's, that's part of the appeal is the volatility, you know, and the classic rock trope of the warring brothers. You know, obviously, you can do the kinks, you can do Oasis, 
you know, that's that's another thing that that pins them, you know, to to a, a staple of classic rock of all eras. You know, they feel like a throwback, even if they're not, just because they're doing, you know, the the band of brothers literally thing. And we're hoping that they don't end up getting packaged into kind of the nineties right. rock tour packages. There's one yeah, go on a, a, a cruise and stuff. Yeah. The yeah. tour on the tour with Everclear. Like it's it's fascinating to me when bands that didn't make any sense to me together back in the 90s are now touring together as 90s bands. Yes. Right. And I'm not immune to the charms of that at all, obviously. You know, I've seen a bunch of those tours, but it is it, it is fascinating to me the way time compresses. You know, and and what counts as a '90s band now is any band that started in the '90s that survives. You know, I was thinking I did a Lenny Kravitz episode a while back, and I was trying to fix him in time. Like, is Lenny Kravitz a '90s artist, or did he just happen to get popular and have huge songs on the radio starting in the '90s? Like, there's not really a lot that pins him to the era the way you know he wasn't grunge certainly you know he wasn't the dominant sound and like you said at the beginning like when you say 90s people know what you're talking about but what they think is nirvana right Mm -hmm. you know what they if rock wise you know what they think is buzz bin you know alternative rock killing hair metal you know the grunge thing the Lollapalooza thing and that was a dominant strain in the 90s but it wasn't the only one obviously and and the more time that passes you know, the more that gets hard coded is what the 90s means. And that's it is fascinating the way that that affects any band at all from that era that manages to survive this long. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the book. The podcast is my preferred delivery method of, of this stuff, but I have <laughs> read the book. Um, and specifically, right. here, I'll tell you why that is. Um, it actually relates back to Pearl Jam, a, a, a band we mentioned a lot, because one of one of the best parts of the podcast is the journey you take to the song. And and I think about mm. my favorite episode, I've listened to it like seven times, is the Yellow Leadbetter uh, episode. Yeah, And specifically, the it's the one. whole run-up where you talk about that experience in the 90s of buying a CD, right? In the whole <laughs> process, you've got you know limited funds, right. you're, and you're hoping yeah. for the good song ratio to be mm-hmm. you know good, and you do the boop-boops and all of this. And... In the meantime, you get a nice little taste of Spin Doctors, you get a little taste of Concrete Blonde, right? Versus in the book, in the chapter that that song comes up in, it flows sort of right into the Pearl Jam piece and you don't get that opening bit. You know what I mean? Which lends to two questions. One is, how do you decide what doesn't make it? You know, how do you parse Mm. all that out if it's you or if it's an editor? And the, the second thing is, is when you have those types of stories that are specifically 90s type of nostalgia, how do you work that in and try to paint these songs in the context that they were in? For example, trying to buy a CD and hoping they have certain percentage of good songs. With the book, you know, it, it, my monologues in the podcast are scripted, you know, down to the word. You know, I, I cannot speak extemporaneously in that sense and so the book started with me having at that point you know a hundred monologues totaling literally like six hundred thousand words you know and a book ideally is like 80 maybe you know and so the book was a challenge of radical compression right and what you lose and i agree with you on this completely is what you lose is the rambling 
and the where is he going with this, you know, and the odd or non-existent connections between things. You know, Matthew Sweet to Goo Goo Dolls makes a lot of sense. You know, plenty of the things I've done have not made any sense. You know, I did the Torn episode, Natalie and Bruglia, and I just talked about being in a band, you know, in high school and college, you know, because we did covers of covers and Torn is a cover of a cover. Like that, that sometimes the connections are logical and sometimes they're they're not illogical, but just personal to me in a way that's not going to make sense to anybody else. And so the book, by definition, if I'm going to get 100 plus songs into an 80,000 word book with 600 plus thousand words of source material, you are going to lose a lot of like the chaos that precedes like me actually talking about Yellow Lead better. Right. And that was a challenge with the book. And that was a cool challenge. But like I think about the Black Crows in the context of buying CDs Right. Because these album covers, all of them I know so well from seeing them on the wall of CDs at Camelot Records. And like, maybe I'm going to get this. You know, I love, you know, She Tossed Angels. I love, you know, Remedy. You know, should I buy this record? You know, and like the Black Crows have had some remarkable album covers, right? Like Amorica, obviously, but even like By Your Side, like just the way that they look, you know, like you say, like the sort of flamboyance. And that's where I start to see what you're talking about, about the uh oh, sort of flashiness returning you know but the three snakes one charm like the i don't know what they call that thing that you put on the 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 45 you know that's a really cool cover concept and i i remember it so clearly on the wall at camelot like that's part of the context of the black crows even now is like they were always there i was always hearing them they were always an option you know they were always a road i never quite took to the degree that i took you know pearl jam pavement whatever 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 and so it's I I prefer the podcast to ultimately because I have the space, you know, I can talk about the Goo Goo Dolls and whatever else I want to talk about for 8,500 words versus having to like fit 15 songs, you know, and close to that many micro eras into that same space, you know, for one chapter of a book, you know, it's a different kind of thing. And I hope there's enough of a connection you know, both for people who know the podcast well and people who don't know the podcast at all, you know, that the book is its own thing, that it stands alone, you know, that that, that it brings something new to people who know the show and also brings something to people who aren't familiar with me or the show at all, you know, but it's definitely a different animal, you know, the book. And and whereas with the podcast, you know, it's it's I am free to ramble you know, too free, one might argue, you know, I, I this is me doing this. I would not put that on an editor. Like, it was me, honest, okay. uh, uh, ultimately, you know, figuring out how to cut this down, you know, and what comprises, you know, if I'm talking about Yellow Lead Better, like, I don't even remember the context that I put that in in the book, ultimately, you know, but I couldn't do the big lead up, you know, to the CDs, to hearing songs on the radio, you know, I couldn't wind up the way I would have preferred to, you know, but hopefully the book stands on its own, you know, as a very compressed version of what the show is doing. Well, then the Lead Better episode particularly speaks well to Crows fans because the sort of general mindset that was going into that is how they don't put their best songs on their own records. Mm, and Crows fans okay. can relate to that, except for they don't put their music on anyone else's records at all. They just cut it and never, never put it out. And okay, so what is what's what are the the superior non-album Black Crow songs? Yeah, so what's for the, example, in um, okay. nineteen ninety-two, they were on tour and they stopped in New Orleans and uh, recorded mm-hmm. four songs there. The current sort of white whale 
of Crows fans is a fully mastered and mixed studio version of a song called Exit, which they have played live, but there's okay. no there's demos out there. And I I know Pearl Jam fans in my circle too, and they do this as well, but we become massive collectors of sure. all of this rare stuff. Mm-hmm. And they That's have really interesting because you know, Southern Harmony, obviously, they did all these, you know, they did like a super deluxe release so they did a three disc set i'm looking at here that's a bunch of live shit you know in different mixes or whatever but even yeah. then what is their rationale like they i they the crows have to be aware of the desire for this like what is why won't they do it now yeah exactly well and yeah mm. so we've had that same conversation about shake your money maker and yeah. southern harmony as they both had those massive releases and we're kind of waiting for this stuff to come out but what it's fueled is this community that sure you know we have we have people that have archived them live and have video content all over uh on youtube and trading circles you have an entire database um there's a website called crow's base okay, which good good yeah you know you can type in any song you can hear figure out the sessions they came from how many times they played it live where they've played it and i know they're similar for other bands too but sort of the mystery of the band becomes something that makes it just as interesting beyond just the music, you know, tracking sure. the history. Nerds like me with spreadsheets. I have a spreadsheet that tracks all of this stuff. <laughs> this I, is very cool. Like I see this for Prince. You know, I love it when I run into something like this. Prince obviously has this kind of thing. Ween has this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any, you know, the, the Venn diagrams cross there. Like Dave Matthews band, you know, some of these bands probably, you know, Crows fans don't want to be compared to too much. But I love any bands that inspires this kind of fervor where it's like, I want to go back and see, you know, like I was listening this morning, like I was listening to uh, Three Snakes and this song only halfway to everywhere, like really jumped out at me. Right. Like, I think the Dirty Dozen Brass Band is on it. You know, like this, it was a, it was just a great song. And it's like the, the fact that I can go now you know, and see when they played the song and where it came from, you know, and if there are different versions, like that's a really, really cool thing, you know, and there's a certain vague genre of band that inspired this, but yeah, you know, just sort of a jammier thing, you know, live or the, diff, the, the, the versions change a little over time, you know, that's where, again, you get crossover with Pearl Jam or whatever, but the Crows are clearly their own thing in that sense. And that's very, very cool. We've made a, a whole community of spreadsheet making data trackers <laughs> fantastic doesn't get more rock and roll than that you know exactly amen all right i'm just going to ask you a couple little quick hit questions before i sure. before i let you go just because i'm always curious how this looks you know also one of the things i really enjoy about your podcast is not only the nostalgia of the 90s but it's the relatability of dudes in their mid 40s <laughs> <laughs> we do we do have a general aura about us, don't we? Yeah. Of, of being in the grocery store and you're listening to, mm-hmm. you know, slam metal while you're picking out oranges and that's right. Stuff like that. So, specifically when it relates, you're in your household and you're interacting with your kids. What is what's one of the things you come across it's the hardest thing to explain to your kids that was just normal in the 90s that they look at you like, Ooh. "What?" <laughs> I mean, it's buying CDs. You know, it's not having access to basically all the music ever made, you know, Mm -hmm. immediately and having to pick sides, 
you know, and if you, if you don't buy the CD, you know, you're not going to hear it, you know, in full any other way, mm-hmm. you know, just, I, it just, it blows my mind. It would have blown my mind as a 12 year old to know, you know, that I could do this now, you know, just the idea that when I was 12 years old, you know, 1990, early nineties, I have like 10 to 15 CDs, you know, tops, you know, and, and like the crows, you know, it's like I was never able to listen to a full record because I didn't want to spend $17 on a CD, you know, if it's the only one I can buy in a month or whatever. And just how that that pins you down to a certain sound, you know, and, and if you're a little conservative, you know, and a little careful about the CDs you buy, it can keep you from being, you know, as adventurous, you know, as you'd like to be. And so that's that's the biggest difference. You know, I play a ton of this stuff for my kids and they're mostly indifferent to it. You know, the, the, the 90s band they love the most by far, I think, is They Might Be Giants, you know, which, you know, they put out kids music, right? You know, like they sound, you know, Hot Dog from the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, you know, like there's a very, the on-ramp there was very clear, you know, and and, and it's it's cool that my kids are that into them, but that makes a lot of sense to me. But just, just there's no way to explain there's no way to explain living before the internet to kids mm-hmm. now, you know, not having smartphones, you know, having three TV channels, you know, if you didn't have cable, like all of that stuff, you know, as much of a cliche as it is, like it is just absolutely impossible to explain, you know, like, whether or not you believe in the monoculture, you know, just you, you didn't have nearly as many options back yeah. then, you know, you were bound to whatever was on mtv and on the radio you know and we liked it yes (laughs) i tried to explain to my kids the concept of watching tv as it happened and you couldn't pause it you couldn't pause it it is what was so if you're up in the morning watching saturday morning cartoons which by the way it's the only day they were on Mm -hmm. and then you know you're watching voltron you had to hit the commercial break to go to the bathroom and get that other bowl of cereal you know because the, the second bowl of cereal is key there absolutely yes, yes. another re-up on your fruity pebbles or whatever but no that's that's a thing no dvr no pause you know if you missed it you missed it it's over it's gone it's and over. that leads me to like that's one of the biggest <laughs> things that i do or say that reveals that i'm from the 90s i don't know if you have one but often i will say something like you know my daughter's got a basketball game and then there will be something on tv she wants to watch and i'll be like don't worry we'll just tape it that's like, right. What, what the hell do you mean? You tape the it. VHS tape. <laughs> yes. You know, I, we had like compilations of videos. They might be giants were one of them, actually. But just, yeah, just waiting, you know, months and months with the VHS, with the VCR ready to record Angel by Aerosmith, because I really wanted to hear that song. Yes. You know, and they played it like once every two months on MTV. And the day I finally got it, it was one of the best days of my life. And you end up, up with VH point. tapes of either That's right. a multitude of 10-second clips of stuff you taped that you didn't really want, or That's right. you missed the beginning of the song you did want. That's right. And so, and canonically, the song starts where that tape starts. Correct. Right? It starts 15 so- seconds into it. You know, that's, that's, that's how I hear the song in my head. You know, any glitches in the tape that change the audio just for a second, like, that's how I hear the song now. So when the podcast comes to an end, you mentioned you have three episodes left of the podcast. <laughs> I've heard you talk about, you know, the editors are like, okay, that's it. Uh, so what's next for <laughs> what's next for Robert Villa? Where are we going to find you? What's the next project on the horizon? I'm not sure what the next project is, just that there will be one, right? Like I need a break, you know, and I'm going to take a break, you know, of several months, 
you know, but I have every intention of being back, you know, in the summer, you know, possibly in the early fall with something else, you know, and the, the big question there is like, do we do another decade? You know, do we do something completely different? You know, I do really like this format. I do, even if any one episode is encompassing all these different songs, having one focal song as a starting point, you know, I, this format, I am loath, you know, to walk away from, that doesn't mean that I won't, but I do, I'm hesitating a little bit to maybe do that. So I don't know what the answer is right now. And certainly we continued, we, we considered just continuing on with the nineties. We felt like we could, but we also felt like we needed to end at some point. Right. And so we'll be back for sure. I'm not sure with what, you know, but I absolutely want to keep doing this in some capacity because I really love doing it. Well, I really enjoy. I know a lot of listeners really enjoy. I love uh, what you do, how you do it, uh, the delivery of it. It's a staple well, thanks, in man. my car. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And thanks for coming on and just sharing a little, no, thanks for, um, yeah. sharing a little bit about the crows with you and, uh, you know, enjoy yeah. uh, whatever comes next in your time <laughs> off. I will. But thanks for having me. It was really cool. You know, this is a band I've been curious about forever, you know, and didn't know nearly as much as I wanted to know. And so just listening to your show and getting the chance to jump into this catalog, you know, in a more intense, you know, focused way. It's, it's really been cool for me. So I really appreciate the opportunity, man. Thanks. It's awesome. So one of the things we do here is uh, we always have the guest pick out a play out song. Uh, it can be anything right. you want by any band. Man. Okay. Uh, you know, I already mentioned it, but I, I really do like this song only halfway to everywhere. You know, some of the songs that jump out at me, I think are maybe a little obvious, you know, to people really steeped in this band, you know, like wiser time, of course, is probably, you know, historically the biggest hit off of Morica for people now, but I, I really did dig this song only halfway to everywhere, you know, and it, and, and, and again, like it, it felt like a nodding to previous eras in the best way, you know, like they're still in the seventies, you know, but they got the dirty dozen brass bands with them, you know, so they can, it sounds a little like Sly Stone, but it sounds a lot like the black crows. Right. And it sounds a little bit like the seventies, but it also sounds like 1996 in some ineffable way. Like it's just a really cool example for me of a band, you know, straddling multiple eras you know, in genres simultaneously, but still sounding like themselves. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Here's halfway to everywhere. Stay tall, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>